is up, everybody out there in podcast land? Welcome back for another episode of the Capo Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Sam Engelman, which you all already know because everyone listening to this already knows me, I think. I don't know. We're getting some more views on it. Um, it seems to be going all right, peaks and valleys. But anyways, last week we finished up the... American Renaissance Part 2, and I told you all what I think needs to happen if we want to have a brighter future for our culture. And between those two episodes, American Renaissance Part 1 and Part 2, and the, the book series, and Tyrants and Savages, and God and the Truth, and American Dystopia... And all the episodes I've done outside of the books, and including the books themselves, I feel like I have beaten the the dead horse of cynicism and dystopia quite enough. And so I, I'm, I'm looking for a new direction to take things from here. Because I've said about all I really can say about the the state of our union and the state of our culture and to just keep harping on it every single time I do an episode I think would be I don't know I would it would be boring to me and I imagine it would be boring to you so what am I going to do from here that my friends that is the question and I think the answer to that question is I I want a vehicle and it's going to be a vehicle for me to continue what I really really actually like to do. I have been a teacher at the the local high school for the last 5 years and I really really enjoy teaching. Um I've got a lot of problems with the public school system. I think it does a lot of things wrong. I have as of now, decided that I want to homeschool my own kid um, for a whole host of reasons. Uh, most of them you can probably glean from previous episodes. But um, I really like the teaching. And I think there's a there's a thing that a lot of people have missed from their uh, education, especially in English literature, because I think that most English literature teachers in public school system in America, in the in just as a general rule, um, and this might piss some people off, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think most English teachers suck at their jobs because English literature is completely tied up with and connected to Western civilization, and that is something that we've forgotten about. Uh, I think we forgot about it a long time ago, and it goes back to the last two episodes talking about the American Renaissance and and remembering kind of where we come from as a culture, and that's what I've tried to kind of inject into my last two years of teaching uh, to gain, to, to help the students gain an understanding of the culture they live in, the world they live in, and the ideas they have and where they come from. And this has led me to kind of inject a lot of philosophy and mor- morality and moral thought into, um, into my teaching. And it's not like I'm just adding it out of thin air. It comes with and alongside teaching things that are already in the curriculum. There are all kinds of amazing, great things that are in the curriculum of the high school system, the existing system we have, at least the the system, the textbooks that I have. And the problem is, when most teachers go to teach those things, they tell the kids to read those things, and they either just read along in the textbook and use the two or three notes that are contained in the, you know, the teacher's version of the textbook to kind of help their lessons along. And they don't really think of it beyond that. But that I think is a big problem because there are specific reasons why you read all of these things when you're in high school. 
and I think I've I think I've talked about a few of these things before, but just off the top of my head, you know, when you start reading things as a for example, I'm going to do in this episode, uh, I'm going to talk about the Odyssey, but uh, more broadly, things like the Odyssey and the Iliad and uh, Shakespeare and all those novels they make you read, Orwell, Animal Farm. Uh, 1984, Golding and his Lord of the Flies, uh, Bradbury and Fahrenheit 451, and a whole bunch of other novels you're supposed to read while you're in high school. There is all of this very important cultural and moral ideas infused in all of these things that you're supposed to learn about because it is part of your culture, but most kids don't learn about them while they're in high school. And it's a it's a combination of they just don't really care enough to learn about them. But it's also, it falls back to the teachers. And a lot of the teachers do not actually teach the the underlying things that are under the story that they're supposed to. There, there's a reason why we read these things. And these things are supposed to teach your children or the children of your society, they're supposed to teach moral lessons. And I think we lost that thread a long time ago. Um, And I think we've lost it so completely and irrevocably that we're we're not getting it back in this system as it is. Um, And that's not a problem that can be fixed by just me. And it's not a problem that can be fixed uh, outside of just completely gutting the state and federal education system as it exists and reshaping it into something new. To fix the education system, which I'm thinking I'll do an entire episode over the education system, but I'm going to wait until after I have stopped teaching because uh, I want to avoid any awkward moments in my last month as a teacher but uh one of the things is you need to you need to just get rid of the federal uh department of education because they are doing a complete shit job of what they should be doing because what they should be doing is teaching and explaining western civilization and they're not doing that but the good news is They've still got some things that you're supposed to teach in the curriculum that are still there. And there's going to be a few, a precious few, discerning students that are going to read those stories and actually get out of them what they should. But for for most of you who aren't in high school, these are stories that you were supposed to read and either you've forgotten about, or while you were there, you you didn't read them, number one, your teacher didn't make them make you read them, number two, or you just kind of glossed over them and touched some high points and talked about a couple of the things that happened in the stories, but not the ideas driving the stories themselves. And so what I think I'm going to do with the podcast moving forward, at least in the in the short term, I want to do a series of podcasts over very important works that are existing in the the school curriculum of at least in the textbooks I have. And what I want to start with is the Odyssey. And the Odyssey is a work, an epic poem that is something that is in the the freshman textbook. So this is something that freshmen are supposed to learn. And uh, I think that's enough of a preamble. What I'm going to do is go right into it, and I'm going to start with the, the very, the opening sentence, or the opening sentences of the poem. And I think that's how I want to do all of these, uh, all of these summaries and analysis of the works, I want to read the introduction and then uh, maybe some bits and pieces here and there or just a an explanation of what actually happens in the story. So, here we go. For Homer, the Odyssey. It starts like this. Sing in me, 
Muse, and through me, tell the story of that man skilled in all ways of contending, the wanderer, harried for years on end after he plundered the stronghold on the proud height of Troy. So, that's how the Odyssey begins. And like most ancient Greek stuff, Homer starts his story, Sing in Me, Muse. Why does it start like that? Why are we singing? What in the heck is a muse? So, in its original form, this epic poem was an oral story. It was not written down. And most ancient cultures passed down stories orally. Now, why did they do that? Well, because before the printing press and scribes, there was not a whole lot of reading and writing going on in, in the world. So in the beginning, this was a story that was told or sung as in a song or a poem. And everyone knows it's easier to remember the words of a song than just to remember a really long speech. So that's why it's an epic poem. It's easier to remember a poem, a song, than it is a, a full novel, right? That's, that's how our brains work. It's, it's especially how your brain works if you're not like we are in the modern world where, where we have Google at our fingertips and we know that we can read. So our brains work in this way where, where we know we can go reference stuff if we need to. In the ancient world, uh, people were actually, their brains were wired slightly different. If you did, if you knew that you couldn't go reference something if you needed it, you would have to remember it. This is why people in the ancient world likely had better memories than we do. So, that's the epic poem part. What is a muse? Now, a muse was a goddess in Greek and Roman mythology. They were the in in Greek mythology they were the daughters of Zeus, and the job of a muse was to preside over the arts and sciences. So when Homer starts, Sing in me, muse, he is calling on the help of a goddess to help him sing or tell a good story. He's asking for help from the gods to do this correctly. He's asking for divine assistance. Now, arguably, the, the Odyssey, speaking of good stories... It's arguably not really a quote-unquote good story because Odysseus lets all of his shipmates and crew die. Well, he doesn't let them die, but he kind of does. He lies throughout the whole thing. He kills a bunch of people. Uh, he cheats on his wife with more than one nymph. And he takes 10 years to complete a trip that should have taken him a couple weeks. All that being said... Odysseus is still considered this great Greek hero, which tells you, I guess, a little something about Greek culture a couple thousand years ago. So to understand a good story, usually you need to understand about the author. And the problem with this is, we don't actually know much about Homer. Homer was called the blind prophet or the blind poet of ancient Greece. We don't know for sure if he was actually blind. We're just kind of guessing. Uh, and so much for really knowing a lot about the author because it was so long ago that most of the history is kind of tied up with myth and, and we're not positive about all of it. What we do know, we do know that historically uh, the, the story of the Odyssey starts at the end of the Trojan War. And we know that the Trojan War happened somewhere around the 12th century BC. That is 12 centuries before Christ was crucified. And the century is about 100 years, which is a very long time ago. Which means we don't actually know a lot about it. But what we do know is that Greece fought Troy in this great war that ended with the fall of the city of Troy and the, the Greeks winning a, a victory. And Homer composed the Odyssey and the Iliad about around the 8th century BC. 
somewhere around there. Again, historians kind of argue over the when this happened. And the Odyssey is, like I said before, this epic poem. And an epic poem is a long poem. And it is all centered around a heroic character. So, the Odyssey takes place after the Iliad. And to understand the Odyssey better, we're gonna give I'm gonna give you a real short kind of rundown of the Iliad and the Trojan War. So the story of the Trojan War goes something like this. There's this lady, and her name is Helen. And Helen is the wife of the king of Sparta in Greece. She is very beautiful. And she runs off with a prince of Troy. In some versions of the story, she doesn't run off with him. She is stolen by him. Anywho's, as you can imagine, her husband isn't pumped about this. And he goes to the king of all Greece, this guy called Agamemnon, and they rally a bunch of troops, and Greece and Troy fight a war over Helen. Now, um, was the war really over Helen, or was it more over resources and political reasons? Yeah, probably, but the story is that Helen is so beautiful, and she is so desired that she causes a war by her beauty. Now, uh, in the story of the Iliad, you get the story of Achilles. And Achilles is the greatest of all Greek warriors, and he does all kinds of damage to the Trojans. He ends up uh, killing Hector, the famous prince of Troy. But him and Agamemnon don't get along from the beginning, and so the war doesn't go super well in the beginning. Uh, and then the war famously ends when Odysseus comes up with this rad idea to build a giant wooden horse and hide soldiers in it and then give it as a gift to the Trojans. And apparently the Trojans are really stupid and they bring the horse into their walls, the Greeks jump out, they open the gates, and they sack the city of Troy and boom, the war is over. So, the Odyssey, the, the Odyssey picks up there, basically. After the Trojan War is over, Odysseus and his men get on their ship, and they're headed home to Ithaca, which is the island uh, of which Odysseus is the king. Now, Odysseus, is the his, his prime kind of heroic attribute is his cleverness. He is a clever guy. Uh, but for some reason, he has a lot of trouble on his trip home to the island of Ithaca. Now, there are a ton of things that happen in this journey, and I'm not going to be able to hit all of them. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of go over the, the broad idea of the story and the famous bits of the story. So when the Odyssey starts, you have uh, ten years have passed since the fall of Troy. It's been 10 years since Odysseus has left uh, Ithaca. And back home in Ithaca, he still hasn't returned, and there is this, there is this rowdy group of suitors who have come to his queen and have started to kind of court her, woo her, try to, try to get her hand in marriage. And her name is Penelope. Now, she has remained faithful to her, to her husband, Odysseus, the whole time. And she has a son, Odysseus' son, and his name is Telemachus. Now, Telemachus has never met his father, or if he did, he was a baby when he, when he last saw him. Well, not a baby. He was a very young child when he saw his father last. And he, he wants to overthrow the suitors, but he kind of lacks the confidence and experience to actually fight them. And there, there's a whole bunch of these suitors, but there's kind of a ringleader of them. And this ringleader of the suitors is planning to assassinate Telemachus, who is his only opposition to, to the throne. But unknown to all these suitors... Odysseus is still alive, and now we get kind of a, a shifting of 
perspective over to Odysseus. So where is Odysseus? Well, Odysseus is on this island, and he is being held <laughs> captive, I guess, by a beautiful nymph, a sea goddess, and her name is Calypso. And Calypso is obsessed with Odysseus. She loves Odysseus. And she wants, uh, she's basically keeping Odysseus as a sort of sex slave on her island. And this happens more than once to Odysseus in the story, but this is kind of where you find Odysseus first. And Calypso is not a, uh, it's not that she's a bad guy in this story. Her island is very beautiful, and there's butterflies and, and happy things, and, and her island is a paradise. It's a utopia. But still, Odysseus longs to return home to his wife and his son. But he can't because he has no ship and he has no crew to to get him there. So Calypso keeps him around, and every night, him and Calypso have sex, uh, she lies with him every night, and every day Odysseus sits on the coast on the rock and looks towards Ithaca and kind of cries. Um, he's pining for home. While this is going on, the gods are sitting up on Olympus, and they are debating Odysseus's future. And the, the prime helper of Odysseus this whole time is Athena. And Athena is Odysseus's strongest supporter. She wants to help Odysseus. She wants to help Telemachus. And she's trying to put all this together um, so that he can get home to his family. And so she kind of talks Zeus into helping her out with this. And because all the different Greek gods have different kind of... Uh, roles to play, Zeus sends Hermes, who is the messenger god, he sends Hermes to Calypso's island. And Hermes' job is to demand that Calypso allow Odysseus to leave and help Odysseus leave. And he tells her that she has to help him build a ship and leave. And she agrees to this, but she agrees to it kind of, She her heart's not in it, for sure. She wants to keep Odysseus around. She tries to talk Odysseus into staying there. She explains that, like, uh, your wife will never be as beautiful as I am. Your wife is not immortal. Uh, your wife won't, you know, maybe this isn't in the book, but, like, your wife won't do the things in bed to you that I will. Like, she uses everything she can to try to keep him there. But Odysseus, showing his true heroic nature, he explains to Calypso that even though his wife is not immortal and his wife is not nearly as beautiful as she is, he he longs to be reunited with his wife and with his homeland. And this shows you that Odysseus is a hero, even though the, the whole time he's cheating on his wife with this lesser goddess. Um, and it's kind of hard to imagine Odysseus wanting to leave a literal goddess to go home, but he does. Now, finally, o Calypso agrees to this, and she builds him like a like a shitty raft, basically, and and sets him on his way. Now, Poseidon finds out that Odysseus has been kind of set free by Calypso and is sailing, and he sends a storm to wreck Odysseus's crappily built raft ship. Now, why does Poseidon want to do this to Odysseus? And we're going to find out why, but first, Odysseus has to tell his story to the king and queen who take him in because Athena rescues him from this shipwreck and leaves him on this other island with a king and queen. And this is where we get to kind of a, a flashback. Odysseus ends up with this king and queen, and he tells his story, his, his long odyssey of why he's been so long away from home. And he spends the night describing his fantastic adventure.
to these, uh, these people until his arrival on Calypso's island. And the first story he recounts is his trip to the land of the Lotus Eaters. And, well, that's not the first. The first is, like, right after they leave Troy, but this is the first important story. And Odysseus and his men land on this island, and there's this magical drug-like flower called the Lotus. If anyone eats it, all they want to do is keep eating it and get more Lotus. They don't care about anything else except eating the Lotus plant, the Lotus flower. They forget their home, they forget their wives, they forget their children, they forget their duty and their honor and their responsibility. And this is our this is really our first Greek moral lesson. And it's a pretty simple lesson that's even timeless today because the lotus is a symbol, obviously, for, for drugs, and drugs are bad. Right? Okay. Um so they're, the lotus is so bad that Odysseus has to tie up the guys that get a hold of it, and he has to sail away from the island. And then he sails off, and he lands on this new island. And the new island is uh, not any better, really, because it's run by a whole bunch of giant cyclops. And a quick side note, the Greeks probably thought that cyclops were real because of elephant skulls that they found. And if you've ever seen an elephant's skull, it looks like what a cyclops skull would look like. Because they have that giant trunk, and there's this giant kind of cavity in the middle of the face. And the Greeks probably thought that was a giant cyclops. Anyways, he and his shipmates go into this cyclops cave. And they eat a bunch of his cheese, and they steal some of his goats, and they plan to steal some more stuff, and they want to go back to their ship. They want to rob this guy blind, this cyclops, return to their ship, and bug out. Odysseus, though, Odysseus wants to see the cyclops, because who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to see the cyclops? And uh, also, Odysseus is kind of fine with all of his guys stealing from the cyclops, because the Cyclops is a sort of barbarian, uncivilized beast, and so, kind of, by Greek morals, it's kind of alright to mess with him. Now, they wait all day in the Cyclops' house cave, and when the Cyclops comes home, the Cyclops isn't super pumped about having visitors when he gets back. And, wild as ever... Odysseus demands that the Cyclops give them gifts and, like, uh, presents as a treat to honor them as guests, because this is kind of the law of the gods, or so he says, so Odysseus says. This is the law of, like, uh, taking guests into your house. But the Cyclops says he doesn't really give a damn about Zeus and the laws that Odysseus is talking about. The Cyclops doesn't really honor the gods like the Greeks do. So instead of presents, he decides he will eat some of Odysseus's men. And then he grabs two of them, and he smashes their brains out, and he cooks them for dinner. And then the Cyclops goes to bed. And Odysseus thinks about killing the Cyclops, but the Cyclops has rolled this huge rock into the entrance of his house, so they will be trapped if they if they kill him. And also, Odysseus' sword does nothing to the Cyclops' like thick skin. He can't stab through it. So night passes, morning comes, the Cyclops wakes up, and the Cyclops kind of like nonchalantly does his chores. He milks his sheep. He kind of pats his sheep on the head, and then he smashes two more dudes and eats them for breakfast. Um, and then he leaves, and he leaves Odysseus and his men trapped inside by rolling the rock back over the entrance. Now, while the Cyclops is gone, Odysseus cooks up this plan. He has this flagon of super potent alcohol with him, uh, and he he takes a big like a, a ship's mast size tree 
and he he whittles it into a spear and he hardens it in the fire and he plans something and he says okay we're going to we're going to get the cyclops drunk and uh then we're going to stab his eyes out or his eye out of course and that's the uh that's the plan and so the night comes and uh and he he gives the cyclops some of this very potent liquor and he gets the cyclops drunk and the cyclops is kind of grateful for this very good liquor and he tells odysseus as a as repayment for this great liquor his treat is that he's going to eat odysseus last that's that's like what he gives him he says uh this is so good and I'll, I will thank you by killing you last. And then he goes to sleep, and Odysseus sticks that big old spear in the fire, and he gets it red hot, and he stabs the Cyclops in the eye with this flaming spear. And then um, the Cyclops wakes up, if you can believe it, but he's blind, and he can't get a hold, he can't get a hold of Odysseus and his men because he's been blinded. Uh, and then the next morning, Odysseus is able to escape by tying his men to the underside of the Cyclops's sheep. And when the Cyclops stands at the entrance and he feels his sheep as they go out, he doesn't understand that the, the Greeks are tied under the sheep. And so Odysseus is allowed to, or able to leave. And... Odysseus tells the Cyclops that his name is Nobody. So, of course, when the Cyclops is, like, yelling and screaming about his eye to all of his buddies on the island, who are also apparently idiots, he says, Nobody is hurting me. Nobody has blinded me. And all of his Cyclops, fr all of his Cyclops friends are, like, you know, shrugging, and they're like, well, okay, then I guess we'll go back to bed. So that's how Odysseus escapes. But as Odysseus and his men sail off, he yells back to the island and he tells the Cyclops his name and he tells him that, like, uh, t you need to tell everybody that uh, it was me, Odysseus of Ithaca, that blinded you. Because Odysseus can't stand not getting credit for this, for this great trick that he's pulled. And the Cyclops even kind of offers him an out here because the Cyclops knows of this prophecy that uh, he was told that a, a man named Odysseus would blind him. And the Cyclops tries to get Odysseus to come back and uh, kind of make things right with him because... The Cyclops thinks if he makes things right with this man, then it is possible that his father will restore his eyesight. Because the Cyclops' father is none other than Poseidon, the god of the sea. But uh, Odysseus tells the Cyclops instead to kind of like kick rocks, and he's not going to, to come back. And so the, the Cyclops puts a curse upon Odysseus. And this is, a, this is where we get the idea of like when you curse someone's name, it, it holds meaning. And this is what the Cyclops does. He curses Odysseus by name and he calls out to his father Poseidon to curse Odysseus. And because of this course of events... Odysseus and his men are cursed, and uh, their fate is kind of already sealed by this. And the, the curse is basically that all of Odysseus's men will die, which doesn't really seem fair because Odysseus is the one that's done all this, but it's his men who kind of bear the brunt, but will kind of glaze over that. But it doesn't happen right away, because after that, Odysseus and his crew, they go to this island, and... I'm fast-forwarding kind of a little bit, I'm glossing over details, but some dude gives them a bag of wind that is supposed to, uh, it, it would have blown them off course, 
but he gives it to them and is like, oh, if I give you this, it won't blow you off course. Don't open this bag, whatever you do. So you can already see where this is going. They sail almost all the way home. Like they can see Ithaca on the horizon. And for some reason, Odysseus decides this is a great time to take a nap. And so he takes a nap, and one of the idiots in his crew opens the magic bag of wind, and it blows them all the way back across the Mediterranean Sea. And this is pretty much par for the course for this adventure. Uh, now, they end up after that on this island of giant cannibals, which is great, and the cannibals eat some more of Odysseus's men. Uh, they escape from that, but things don't improve from there. Next, they end up on this island with another nymph. Which, another nymph. This is the first nymph that he meets in the course of the story, but it's the, the second nymph that we're going to meet. And her name is Circe. And Circe is a bit darker than Calypso. Circe is more of a... Like, she's literally a witch. So where Calypso had this kind of beautiful island with butterflies and rainbows, Circe's island is darker with kind of like wolves and mountain lions and and all these animals that are kind of under her control. And she feeds a potion to Odysseus's men and she turns them all into pigs. And again, Odysseus, well... For the first time, Odysseus finds himself on a beautiful, though kind of scary, nymph's island as a prisoner. Um, and he, of course, he asks Hermes to help him. And Hermes helps Odysseus trick Circe, the witch. And he forces Circe to kind of like uh, turn his men back into men instead of pigs. And instead of, I don't know, instead of immediately leaving the spooky witch island, Odysseus and his men decide to hang out and just party for a month or two. And at one point, one of Odysseus's men gets really drunk and crawls up on the top of the roof of Circe's house, and he falls off and he dies. And uh, Circe, later, will, like she when she's finally forced by, again, kind of by the order of Zeus to help Odysseus is out. She tells Odysseus that he must travel to the land of the dead. And in the land of the dead, this uh, the first guy he's going to talk to is this dead, drunk buddy of his. But we'll get to that here in a second. So uh, Hermes even kind of warned Odysseus not to mess with Circe and to kind of leave. But uh, Odysseus didn't listen because, I don't know, maybe because Circe was hot. I don't, I'm not sure. But, again, like, Odysseus sleeps with Circe, just like Calypso, and the, I don't know, I guess the message here is that, like, uh, Greek heroes were, were men that women desired, and uh, Circe is this, she's an example of all the worst parts of what would be considered by the Greeks to be feminine she is kind of sultry and seducting and trying to keep Odysseus from getting home. Um, anyways, so it kind of seems the whole time like, uh, like Odysseus really isn't trying that hard to get home to his wife. But that's not the way, like, that's how we read it, but that's not how the Greeks would have read it. And I'm kind of oversimplifying and poking fun at the story here. Uh, so I, I, I need to pause on that and, and say that Odysseus does really want to get home to his family. It, it is part of this Greek kind of patriotism to get home to his beloved Greece and his family and his wife. Um, and in fact, some of the greatest threats that they face uh, along the way, kind of like the Lotus are these evil things that make Odysseus's men forget about their Greek motherland, which is this terrible thing, right? You have the Lotus, and then you have Circe, and then you have Calypso, and all of these things are kind of like trying to seduce Odysseus and his men into not going home. And Odysseus 
kind of champions himself over all of that and holds on to this to this hope of getting home to his wife and his motherland and that's very important to this to this greek idea of returning to home especially in the next part of the story because in the next part of the story odysseus goes to the land of the dead to hades this descent into the underworld which has remained a literary story in our culture since this and forever. It is this descent into the underworld to learn a truth, to learn a prophecy, to, to gain some sort of knowledge or, or something along those lines. And you see this in literature, and you see it in video games, and you see it all kinds of places. Uh, Even in, like, a a person's life, uh, this, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn. Um, Going through terrible things makes you stronger. Um, If you're going through hell, just keep going. It's this idea that going to the underworld is something that is incredibly dangerous, and full of pain and suffering but will will give you great wisdom and that's what odysseus does through circe's instruction he goes to the land of the dead and the first place he must go to kind of get there is through absolute darkness which is called erebus and uh, i actually use this in my in my books, there's an introduction to one of the chapters that is a line from the Odyssey where Odysseus and his men are going through Erebus, and you have all of these kind of spirits coming out of the dark that are women who are still in their wedding gowns and soldiers who are covered with their armor and blood and old men and young men and children who were never kind of grown up. And it's the idea that like... uh, in the land of the underworld, you have everyone. This is where everyone ends up. No matter if you're the king or the poor man, like everyone ends up in death. Now, in the underworld, Odysseus, the first guy he talks to is his buddy, his bro, that fell off the roof and died. Uh, and this guy um, asks Odysseus to give him a proper Greek burial when he when he gets out because... He hasn't been given this proper burial. Uh, next, he talks to his dead mother, who he does not know has died. Um, and she tells him all kinds of stuff about what's going on back in Ithaca. Uh, he, uh, he talks to a whole bunch of people. He talks to Ajax. He talks to Hercules. He talks to Achilles. He talks to Agamemnon. Uh, basically, all the heroes from the Trojan War are dead. And he's kind of the last guy left. And um, Achilles gives him kind of an interesting, scary bit of knowledge from the land of the dead. Because Achilles was the greatest Greek warrior. And he was this this man who had everything and was loved by everyone. And he explains to Odysseus that he would rather be like the lowliest slave in the land of the living rather than be Achilles in the land of the dead, which is kind of a horrifying notion when, when you think about it from this kind of Greek perspective. Because unlike, unlike the Christian idea of the afterlife, there's no real sunshiny happiness in the, in the Greek afterlife. Uh, and then he, he talks to the blind prophet Tiresias, I think his name is, and Tiresias tells him basically his entire future. He tells him what's going to happen. He warns him not to let his men eat the cattle of Helios, the sun god. Spoiler alert, that's foreshadowing. It's definitely going to happen. Um, finally, this guy tells him that he will make it home, but it's going to be this very long, difficult road to to get back to home. And this... This, along with all the other stuff Odysseus learns, is this deep wisdom that he learns from his journey into the underworld. And then he comes back out of the underworld with this this new knowledge 
that he did not have when he went in. Then he returns to Cersei, and Cersei gives him instruction for the rest of his journey home. And she warns him of a couple things. And the first thing she warns warns him about are the sirens. And these sirens are kind of these, I don't know, I always imagine them as mermaids, but I'm not positive that's exactly right. I kind of like how, uh, if you ever played the Witcher 3 video games, the sirens are kind of like mermaids with wings. Um, and that kind of, I like that aesthetic of them. But what they are, there's these creatures that sit on rocky islands and they sing so beautifully that they lure ships to their to their deaths. Um, but Odysseus, uh, he's a clever guy and he tells his men, okay, uh, I want to hear what the siren's song sounds like. So he makes all his men put wax in their ears, and he makes them tie him to the masts of his ship so that he can hear the sirens sing. And he tells his men, no matter what, don't untie me, just ignore me and sail me by. And he hears the siren song, and he begs to be untied, and his men have the beeswax in their ears so they don't heed his his pleads to be set free. And he actually gets to hear the siren song without dying, which makes him maybe the only guy who ever does. Um, and th- their song it is another one of those things that, that drives him mad. And it's this madness that makes him want to abandon his home and abandon his wife and abandon his family and abandon everything to, to go to them. It makes him mad with lusts, um, but because he's tied down, he cannot he cannot get free. Now, the next thing that Cersei warns him about, or warned him about before he left, is she tells him that he has to choose between these two different paths, and one of the paths is through this this spooky evil cave that is, that is inhabited by a a sea monster with six heads. And she tells him that this sea monster uh, is going to eat six of his men if he goes through this spooky, creepy place. Um, But his only other option is to go and face this uh, maelstrom, this whirlpool. And it has the, the, the probability is if he goes that way, the whirlpool, the maelstrom will eat his whole ship. So Odysseus is forced to choose between the six-headed monster, which is its name is, I think it's pronounced Scylla, S-C-Y-L-L-A, and then the the whirlpool is Charybdist, uh, and he has to choose. And of course he chooses to not tell his men about Scylla, the six-headed monster, and he sacrifices six of his men, basically, to this monster so that he's not torn apart by the the whirlpool, the maelstrom. And then, um, after that, you know, Bob's your uncle, Fanny's your aunt, and they make it through that and to a new island. And this new island is Helios's island with Helios's cattle. And these are sacred, uh, uh, cattle of the gods who don't they don't grow old and they don't die and Odysseus has been warned in the land of the dead to to not let his men eat these cattle of Helios and as you can imagine uh, they do anyway and Helios takes his revenge by wrecking Odysseus's ship and life and all of his men die and this lands Odysseus on the island of Calypso. And we are back to where the story kind of started when he, he started telling his story to that king and queen. So, then he's on Calypso's island, and we all know how that goes. She keeps him on the island as a sort of uh, a sex slave who definitely, definitely wants to get home to his wife and his his son and his homeland but he's also kind of all right with sleeping with Calypso every night. And of course, who wouldn't be? Because she's literally a goddess 
and she is beautiful. So he spends all day crying on the shore and all night entertaining Calypso. And that is that catches us back up to the timeline. Then, following that, he finishes his story. He tells the king and queen about uh, his life and how he seeks to return to Ithaca. And these people help him. They put Odysseus on a ship and they return him to Ithaca. And once he gets there, he seeks out a a friend of his, a guy that worked for him, and that guy's name is Aramaeus. And Athena helps Odysseus by disguising him, and she disguises him as a kind of homeless beggar type person. And his hired man, Aramaeus, kind of brings him into his hut and and feeds him and is cool with him. And then uh, shortly after that, Odysseus' son Telemachus shows up to the, to the hut. Um, and he, he has escaped this, this attack on his life that the suitors were planning. And Odysseus reve- reveals to his son his true identity. And Odysseus and Telemachus come up with a plan to take back Odysseus's house from these suitors. And so the next day, Odysseus goes to his palace, his house. He's still disguised as a beggar. And all the suitors kind of abuse him, and they insult him, and they they don't really respect him because, of course, he looks like this this old beggar guy. And... He goes into the house, and he sits in on this kind of, uh, I don't know, a feast, a a ceremony. Because what has happened is Penelope, the wife, has organized a contest. And the contest is, she's decided she finally has to take a suitor, and so she says, okay, anyone who can string my my long-lost husband, Odysseus's bow. Anybody who can string Odysseus's war bow and shoot an arrow through 12 axe heads, um, they will be able to take my hand in marriage. And one by one, the suitors try to string Odysseus's bow. And they can't do it because the bow the, the I don't know the pound the poundage on the bow is so high that they're not strong enough to even string the bow let alone shoot the arrow and then suddenly like Odysseus disguised as the as the beggar kind of stumbles forward and they all laugh at him and they're like yeah let this let this homeless guy try it and so Odysseus, disguised as a homeless guy, strings the bow, It just effortlessly strings the bow. He pulls back an arrow, and he shoots it through all 12 axe heads. And everybody is astounded, and they're not sure what's going on. And before they can really react, Odysseus turns around, he grabs another arrow, he strings it up and he turns to the crowd. And everybody's still kind of laughing and doesn't really know what's going on and kind of still, like, I don't know if they think it's just luck or if they're kind of making fun of him. They don't really quite see what's going on. And the, the main suitor, kind of the, the leader of all the suitors, um, is, is kind of drinking a, a big goblet of wine and Odysseus pulls back the bow and puts an arrow right through the guy's throat. And this kind of changes the tone of the dinner party, as you can imagine. And suddenly the dinner party turns into a giant massacre. And Odysseus, with the help of Telemachus and his men that are still loyal to him, and of course with the help of Athena and the gods, he massacres all of the suitors. He kills them to the last man. He 
just it's a bloody massacre kills them all and then he's finally reunited with his wife and his wife has kind of one final test for him to make sure it's positively odysseus he has to tell her this secret about their marriage bed which of course he knows the secret of their marriage bed and that secret is that like uh one of the po- one of the four posts of their marriage bed is this living uh tree that comprises like the center of his house and that's the secret and that's when penelope realizes it is for sure odysseus and this is the big reunion and hurrah hooray there everybody's back together and uh next uh the the last thing Odysseus really has to do, and I'm I'm kind of glossing over a couple more kind of lesser things, but the last thing he has to do is that Odysseus has to carry a like a ship's mast into the interior of Greece for a very long way until he reaches this this ordained spot, and then he has to set it, and um, it's this. It is this thing he must do to reconcile himself with Poseidon and put himself right with the gods. And that is the end of the of the story. Once Odysseus is reunited with his family, his wife, his son, and he makes his his recompense to the gods. Peace is restored and power is secured for Odysseus and he becomes king again and everything is hunky-dory. So, that's the story of the Odyssey. If you don't know what it is, that's the quick and dirty in a, I don't know, a less than an hour. You have the whole bit. So, the, the next question is like, what do we learn? What are we supposed to take away from, from this story? Well, we learn a lot of things about what the Greeks think is important to their culture. And you see throughout the course of the story, this this chief conflict in the epic poem is between Odysseus's, uh, his desire to return home and these forces that keep trying to, to stop him from achieving that goal. And that is the chief conflict of the story, and that's what pushes the story forward. And Odysseus continues to struggle and through this long, drawn-out struggle, this long journey, he finally accomplishes his goal. And this is why, in our English language today, when you say the word "odyssey," it is meant to—it means this long, difficult journey. That's what an odyssey is, and that has made it into our dictionary through this story. Uh, and I think that's interesting, and it's important to understand that that we that this story is so important to our to our culture that we have a whole word that is dedicated to it and this is one of those stories that we retell over and over and over in a whole bunch of different ways and it's something we emulate all the time uh one of one good example i think is and hopefully you know this movie the oh brother where art thou it is a very good Coen Brothers movie made, I don't know, in the early 2000s. And it's based on the Odyssey. And it's very loosely based on the Odyssey. But now that you've heard this whole podcast, you should go back and watch Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Because you'll see that uh, the main character, Everett, plays the part of Odysseus. And you have the, the Cyclops is in there, and the Sirens are in there, and there's several other small things. The Suitors, the Suitor is in there. Uh, and it just, it makes for a very good story that we retell over and over and over and over. And you see uh, the thing that puts Odysseus in trouble in the first place. And this is really the the... the the lesson you're supposed to take away from the story. He is this great hero, but he's a hero that makes a mistake. And his mistake in the very beginning, his mistake is pride. 
because when he tricks the Cyclops and he, he's home free, he's clear, all he has to do is sail away and not say anything, he makes the oldest and easiest mistake of humanity because he shouts back his name to take credit for this thing. And he learns a very harsh lesson for it because he shouts back, I am Odysseus, king of Ithaca. When people ask you, you tell them it was me that blinded you. And this is the oldest and easiest mistake of humanity. And he learns this harsh lesson for it, but he does learn that lesson. And the whole story ends with him showing his humbleness to the gods and making himself right with them in the end of the story, which is a very old Greek idea that permeates and combines with later Christian ideas of, of making ourselves right with God and fighting against our vain and prideful human nature. Which, of course, is why it is important and is an important cornerstone of our civilizational ideas on morality and how to be heroic and how to act correctly in the world. Which, again, this is what I was saying at the beginning, why I think a lot of teachers do a bad job. This is why you're supposed to learn about this story in school. This story is supposed to teach you about not being prideful, not being vain, but in, in inhabiting the other attributes of Odysseus that are positive. The, the cleverness, the masculinity, the manliness, the heroicness, the contending against all the elements. All that is stuff you are supposed to emulate, but you are also so you're also supposed to learn that that being full of pride and vanity can get you into very big trouble, which is why the end of the Odyssey, is very important, and it's very quick, but the last thing he does is he travels to this, he goes on this pilgrimage, this journey to end his odyssey, is carrying this this log or this mass to the center of the country and, and reconciling himself with Poseidon, who had a problem with him, and making himself right with that god so that he can go on from there and live a, a decent life now that he has made himself right with his gods. And whether it is a Greek idea or a Christian idea, the idea of making yourself right with God is something you are supposed to strive for. And again, that is why you learn about this story in school. It is the lesson you are supposed to take away from the story. It's not just the story itself. It's the lesson that is important. So, that's the Odyssey in an hour. So, when people ask you anything about it, you'll at least know the, the quick and dirty version of the Odyssey. And going forward with the podcast, I think this is what I want to do. I want to do about an hour episode, and I want to take important works uh, from, you know, American lit and British lit and world lit and Western civilization, and I want to turn them into easy one-hour bites where you can you can get a summary and analysis of what the story's about. So that even if you haven't read it for yourself, because let's be honest, who has the time to sit down and read the entire Odyssey and comprehend it and understand it? Almost nobody. But even if you don't have that time and you're not going to do that, you can listen to this and you can get a good idea of what the story's about and what it means and what you're supposed to take away from it. And I'll do the Odyssey. I will do... I'll do some Shakespeare plays. I know I'm going to do Julius Caesar already. I also want to do Macbeth. I don't know if I'm smart enough to do Hamlet, but I'm going to do some Shakespeare. I'm going to do uh, Paradise Lost at some point. Um, I'm going to do 1984. I'm going to do Animal Farm. I'm going to do Lord of the Flies, Fahrenheit 451, Frankenstein, uh... 
The Road by Cormac McCarthy, which is a very, very, very recent novel about, you know, the end of the world. We'll, we'll dip back into the dystopian stuff for a while. Uh, I want to do some Western stuff. I, I just want to go through all of the stuff you're supposed to learn in high school. And I want to try to make it accessible to people who who are grown up, who maybe don't remember those books, and who maybe want to go back and revisit those ideas and see why it was important that they were supposed to learn them in the first place. Because chances are, and this isn't your fault, chances are your English teacher didn't really teach you about them while you were there because they didn't understand what they were supposed to be reading. Anyways, that is the end of this week's episode of the Cabo Podcast. I'll come at you next week with something else maybe another Greek thing, maybe a Roman thing, maybe Shakespeare. It's all up in the air. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I'm just going to let the spirit guide me. I'll uh, ask the muse to sing in me, and we'll just see where we end up. So I'll see you next week on the Capo Podcast. Thank you for your time.